reality and welcome to the teaching portion of our online gathering. Today we are ending a series that we've been in in the Gospel of Mark since the middle of January. So it's been a long series where we looked at the life of Jesus. And as we end today, I want us to actually go back to the first sermon in this series where I talked a little bit about what Mark does through an analogy. The analogy I used was barbecue. Said when I was uh, a kid, if you would have asked me what I thought of when I thought of barbecue, I would have talked about my parents' barbecue in our backyard in northern Alberta. It was a Coleman barbecue. And uh, this was kind of a functional piece of cookware in our house. We cooked on it only in the summer, and uh, or yeah, only in the summer, especially because we didn't want it to get too hot inside. And there were certain things we would cook there, like burgers and hot dogs and and steaks. Um, And uh, no one in our family was really a great cook on the barbecue. So it wasn't anything that you ever got super excited about. But then I married uh, my wife, Sarah, and her family lives in Texas. So I went to Texas and one of the first times I went, my father-in-law took me out for the steak dinner. So I'd only ever experienced my parents' steak. And I went and had the steak dinner and it was one of the most amazing steaks I've ever had in my life. Also made on on, on a grill, like a barbecue, but just done in a totally different way. And it blew my mind Uh, of what steak might be. And then being in Texas, they introduced me to a whole nother realm of barbecue. In Texas, they call, you know, doing something on a Coleman barbecue, they call that grilling. But they have this whole other kind of food that they call Texas barbecue. And this is something that they slow cook often over you know, open coals and uh, they, they, they hand make all these different kinds of meat. There's brisket and there's different kinds of rubs. There's ribs, there's sausage. It's this delicious, amazing world of meat. Even now, I don't know if you tell, my, I'm salivating quite a bit. I'm having a really hard time um, getting through this all. And the barbecue analogy is not, or or learning about barbecue for me was not just about learning about this new amazing world of Texas barbecue, but it's also learning how to desire something, how to long for something. Like I said, my body is even having like physical reactions right now as I think about Texas barbecue. And I got to be honest, um, I, my, my in-laws live in a place called Garland, Texas. It's a small suburb outside of Dallas. And I love my in-laws. They're awesome. But I never had any desire to go to Garland, Texas. It's not on any of the you know, must-visit lists. But now, not only in, in addition to my in-laws, but I long to go to Garland, Texas because I long to experience this Texas barbecue. Like I said, my body has physical reactions. And, and I'm sad we haven't been able to be there for over two years. I'm not only sad that we haven't been able to see my in-laws, but also that my body has not been able to intake all this delicious meat. And the Gospel of Mark is trying to do the same thing for us. He, uh, Mark is taking Jesus, this, these small categories that we might have for who Jesus is, that he is the king and that he brings the kingdom. And he's trying to explode them into this amazing new world of who Jesus is and what kind of kingdom it is that he brings. But he's not just doing that so that we learn more and that our categories are bigger, but he's doing it so that we actually learn to desire Jesus as our king and as the kingdom. That we develop a passion for Jesus. One of my favorite writers says it this way, that all of our hearts are like a compass. We have passions and desires that that we point at different things. We learn to love. And so for some of us, we might learn to love like Texas barbecue, like I said, or we might have hobbies or, you know, our families or different things that we learn to love. 
And what the Gospel of Mark is trying to do, and I think even the whole Bible, is to calibrate and turn that compass towards Jesus, the person of Jesus, and say, this is the rightful place that your heart should point, that you should learn to be passionate followers of Jesus. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is doing. And all this call to discipleship is just a a call for us to place our hopes and our passions in Jesus. And that's, so that's the, the heart of the Gospel writer Mark, and that's been my heart in developing this series. But I don't know about you, we come to the end of the series, you may have liked the series, you may not have liked it, but I think most of us, uh, maybe our passion isn't the right word to describe how we feel. It's more like, you know, we feel pretty blah right now in our lives. A couple weeks ago, a New York Times uh, author, uh, Adam Grant, wrote a great article. He's, this, is the, this is the title. I think he put the finger on the pulse of what many of us are feeling right now. The title of the article was, There's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. Languishing. That's what he says most people are feeling right now. Languishing is, is in between flourishing and maybe uh, depression or, or really dark place in our lives. We're not doing amazing. We're not living our best lives. We're not at the pits of despair. We're just kind of in this fatty middle where we're stagnant and time feels very empty. It's like a groundhog day again and again and again. In the article, he says, languishing may be the dominant emotion of 2021 from the emotional long haul of the pandemic. So we're feeling this because of the pandemic. And if you're, and so you might say to me, you know, John, you're asking me if I'm passionate about Jesus. Honestly, I'm not passionate about anything right now. I'm just kind of hanging in there. I'm languishing. And so we have this interesting tension. And I want to say this. I'm in this place too. I'm not just trying to say this is you and not me. All of us are in this. All of us are dealing with this uh, pandemic reality. But we, we live in this tension in the Gospel of Mark because we see Mark just and Jesus unashamedly calling us to follow this passionate Jesus who is the king and brings the kingdom and gives his life for us on one hand. And then we feel kind of this languishing stuckness on the other hand. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we bring maybe some of this passion of Jesus into our very real languishing experience? And does the gospel of Mark have anything to say about this? Well, I want to remind us of the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 16, verse 8, it says this, They went out and ran from the tomb. So this is the women that have been with Jesus during his ministry. They saw him died and buried, and they're given the good news that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And so they're supposed to go tell everyone. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. So I don't think they're languishing. I don't think that'd be the correct term to describe these women, but they're in a similar situation. They're stuck. They're stuck. They've been given this good news about Jesus, but they just can't get over the hump to do anything with it. So the question I want to explore is what mobilizes them? What mobilizes them? What gets them beyond their stuckness to a place where they're passionately following and sharing? And Acts 1 gives us a hint so Acts 1 is, is the book that happens after the Gospels, after Jesus has come and died and resurrected. And in this passage in Acts 1, it's, Jesus is with his disciples. It says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. And in verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they're supposed to wait until the Holy Spirit comes on them, 
to mobilize them to ministry. And that's in fact what happens. A chapter later, the Holy Spirit comes on the followers of Jesus and they witness in amazing ways that they become people who were scared to people who are mobilized, so much so that the gospel message that they shared, that they were entrusted with, has reached you and I 2,000 years later on a different continent. And so today I'd like to take a look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to ask if it can be applied to our lives in the same way. Is there anything that the Holy Spirit, we, can, we can learn about the Holy Spirit that will move us from languishing and immobilized to being mobilized? And so we're going to look at four effects of the Holy Spirit by looking at Jesus' ministry in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark to see if there's anything we can learn for ourselves today. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9, we're going to start there. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So by, this is the story of the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. And by placing this story at the beginning of Mark, we're supposed to see that the Holy Spirit is a catalyst for this passionate ministry of Jesus, just like it's the catalyst for the passionate ministry of the disciples in Acts 1. We don't have anything recorded in the Gospel of Mark about the first 30-some years of Jesus' life, but it's when this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus that he is mobilized into ministry. And so what does the Holy Spirit do in Jesus' life that actually moves him to this amazing ministry that we've witnessed over these past last months? The Holy Spirit mediates the presence of God with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the sign and the symbol of God's presence with Jesus. That's the first thing we learn. That God is with Jesus in everything that he does. And therefore, every moment that we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark becomes this holy and divine moment where the Spirit of God is touching down through Jesus into the world. And God's presence in this passage is spoken as God's pleasure. God's presence is spoken as God's pleasure. This amazing word is spoken over Jesus. You are my son. You're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus, we see him going into the world with these two things, that God's presence is with him and that God is pleased with him. And he carries that into every opportunity and every moment that he has, that God is with him and that he is blessed and he can be a blessing to other people. And this is the same promise of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. A legendary commentator, J.I. Packer, says this, What is the essence, heart, and core of the Spirit's work today? I think it's presence. By this I mean that the Spirit makes known the personal presence in and with the Christian and the Church of the risen reigning Savior, the Jesus of history, who is the Christ of faith. The same Holy Spirit that was with Jesus is with us, and it is the presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit, the God who is with Jesus and Jesus himself. And therefore, everywhere that we go, Jesus is with us. Everything that we do, God is with us. And every moment that we have can be a divine moment because the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. And I think that many of us um, live a very different type of reality than experiencing God's presence and especially God's pleasure. We, we experience moments as we have as, as pretty mundane, that they're meaningless. And, and many of us are waiting for God to show up in our lives through a very special moment. We think that'll be the moment when God really shows up is, is through a miraculous special moment in our lives. 
But that's not what we see here. God's presence is with us in every single moment. So every moment becomes a divine moment. And we are also told that God's pleasure rests on us. If you remember from the Gospel of Mark, that the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration, and the crucifixion are all linked together. And that means if we identify with Jesus in his crucifixion, that his death becomes our death and we are raised with him, then this blessing that's spoken over Jesus in Mark chapter 1 by God becomes ours too. And we are his children. He is pleased with us. But yet, I think many of us live our lives as if we're trying to prove ourselves to God. I know that this is something I struggle with, that I can often feel like a failure in front of God, that, I, that every day starts with me needing to, to earn something, to do something, to curry God's favor with me. But that's not what this passage says. If we identify with Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is with us and God's presence is with us. And that means he is pleased with us. He is blessing us. There's nothing that I need to do to earn his blessing. And so a question for us as we think about the presence of the Holy Spirit, the the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives, each section I'm going to give a question for you to reflect on. What would it look like if you believed that the presence of God was with you and the pleasure of God rested on you? How would that help you to look at the moments of your life? You know, for me, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about or trying to apply this into my own life is that every moment is a divine moment. I feel like in my life right now, a lot of things are just mundane moments. It's the repeating of the same thing, of praying with my kids, of eating with my family, of washing the dishes, of biking places. But I'm trying to say that each of those moments can also be divine moments, not because they're extra special, but because God is here with me. And so those moments can become moments where I can bless others in the presence of God out of the blessing that I receive from him. Those moments can be moments where I serve my family. I don't just look at it as a task that I have to do, but an opportunity to love and serve just as God has loved and served me. And on my bike rides, I started to pray for myself and our church that we would become people that grow deep and rooted as I, every tree I try to pass, I try to pray that that would be true of us and our lives, that we'd be a forest of rooted trees, just bearing fruit in season, and that we become people deeply passionate for God. So what might it look like for you to know and see the presence and the pleasure of God in the mundane moments of your life? So the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. That's what we see happening in his baptism. And uh, what's our expectation? The Spirit's here. God voices his pleasure with Jesus. And our assumption would be, as my son would say, let's go. Let's go. Let's go see what's going to happen. Jesus is going to take on the Romans and he's going to bring the kingdom boom right away. So what's the next thing that happens in Jesus' life after the baptism? Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. I think, I don't know about you, but I look at the wilderness times in my life generally like a place of not God's presence and pleasure, but of a place of God's absence. I'm reading this book by A.J. Savoda called After Doubt, and he says this. Here's my hunch. Contemporary conservative Christianity, of which I am a part, has a theological framework for understanding elevation experiences. We're great at serving people in their success, spiritual growth, and victory. But contemporary evangelicalism has less of a framework for valley experiences. We are elevation churches. We have communities where blessing, happiness, and joy are part and parcel of following Jesus, which can be great. 
but we can only remain part of those communities as long as that remains the trajectory of our lives. The minute we enter a valley, being around all the happy, clappy rejoicing can get really difficult. He's saying what I'm trying to verbalize here, that I think we lack a vision for the valley moments. But this is not how spiritual life is viewed in the Gospel of Mark. See, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And that means that there is purpose. It is not the absence of God, but there is a purpose of Jesus being there. The wilderness is not the lack of God's presence and pleasure in our lives, but the place where we might actually be led by God. So if we lack a vision for this, what might be some of the purposes of us going to the wilderness? Well, I want to just give us quickly three The first is that wilderness times in our lives, being led there by the Holy Spirit, can be a place where we learn to identify with Jesus. A place where we learn to identify with Jesus. And one of the reasons Jesus goes to the wilderness in the Gospel of Mark, many commentators say, is because he's identifying with the story of Israel. They are people, if you remember, that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Jesus is going to identify with that story. And when the Holy Spirit leads us to these wilderness times in our lives, which many of us may be feeling right now, it's also an opportunity for us to identify with this story and identify with this Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we see a Jesus here who goes to the wilderness. We see a Jesus who is no stranger to suffering. He's walking this path of downward mobility that everyone deserts him and that he even gives his life for Jesus. And when we identify with him in those wilderness places, it's a way of saying, that's the Jesus that I'm down with. I'm not only here for elevation, Jesus, but I'm here in the valleys too. And Jesus is there. Identify with him in that. The second thing that we see or we learn in these wilderness moments, a purpose of the Holy Spirit going there is that we are built more into the character of Jesus. As always, C.S. Lewis says this better than anyone. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? This is the wilderness experience that we have. Why am I in the wilderness? Why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you putting me on the path of downward mobility? Lewis continues, the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, the desert in the Bible, if we're led by the Holy Spirit, is not God's punishment, but it's the time where he's actually changing us into who we were meant to be, the true humans that we were meant to be, and after the person who is the greatest human to ever live, Jesus Christ, that we are being built into the character of Jesus. He's trying to take our lives and the vision that we have from just being a slightly better cottage into being a castle that he can come and live in. And so a purpose in the wilderness, that we identify with Jesus, that we become more like him. And the third is that we actually are ministered to by him, that we grow in relationship with Jesus. One of the things I was noticing in, in reading this passage is that the angels are serving Jesus in this time. 
And I think that's what can happen is that we experience God close in these times when we're in the wilderness, when other things are shut out and we're not so maybe busy and, and, and our passions are, are, are not focused in other places. We actually have a space where God can minister to us. I shared this with you before and I shared it in our community group recently. I said, when I was diagnosed with cancer last year, it was an extremely scary and frightening time for me. It was a wilderness experience. But the radiation table that I went to every day ended up becoming a very holy place. It was a place where I met God and I can honestly say that he ministered to me and I was so close to him in those times. One of the other people in our community group said, you know, actually I think it's easier in the hard times in life to experience that. He said, it's actually when I'm doing really well that I'm pretty comfortable that it's hard for me to experience God. It's like I have my hands full and I have no space to receive anything from God. And I think that that's true about the wilderness experiences of our lives. It's definitely true in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember back to the rich young ruler, Jesus says, let go, let go of everything, the money and the possessions and the wealth that's holding you back. Open your hands, let go, and then grab onto me. Be ministered to by me. But he won't do it because he's in a comfortable place and has a lot to lose. And it's in these wilderness moments when the Holy Spirit leads us into them that we can actually experience relationship with God. So the Holy Spirit brings purpose to our wilderness times in those three ways, by helping us to identify with our King, to become like Jesus and actually to be ministered to by Him. And so the question for you and I, you know, many people are are calling this pandemic season like a fallow season or a wasted and empty time. But if the Spirit is with us, then this can be a time of testing and of trial and of lament and, and not feeling we're, like we're thriving. But I think it's not true that it's lost time. And so where might the Holy Spirit might be walking you into the wilderness, leading you there in this time? Where might he be calling you to identify more with Jesus, inviting you into that? Where might he be asking you to build, or inviting you to build the character of Jesus in your life? And then where, where might he actually be ministering to you in this season? Is there Holy Spirit purpose to your wilderness? So those are the first two. Let's look at the next one. In uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. The story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark takes place on our earth, but it is, is an earth that's sort of unfamiliar to us because it's a very spiritual place. And the God of the Bible is reigning and ruling in heaven, and he wants to make his reign and rule here on earth in our place. But there's also another dark force at work. Um, and the ruler, as we've seen, is the accuser, or sometimes called Satan in the Bible. And he's at work in our world too. He's reigning and ruling in this world. And he's got us all under his grips and in his power. And a, a key thing for us to remember is that he's more powerful than us. We can't stop his work 
in us and in our world. And so he wreaks havoc on all of our attempts to partner with God. But what we see in the Gospel of Mark and in this passage should bring us such good news, if that's the reality that the Gospel of Mark wants to tell us about. That the Spirit of God is more powerful than the spirit of darkness that's at work in our world and in our lives. So you and I might be chained underneath the spirits, the dark spirits of this world. We might be subject to them and powerless against them, but Jesus is not, and the Spirit of God is not. In this passage, Jesus just comes and he calls out the demon. He speaks and he is silent. He scolds him and he drives him out. He is more powerful than the dark forces at work within our world. And as we've seen through the death of Jesus, he also breaks the hold that the dark powers of sin and death have over us. The word Jesus used to describe his death in the Gospel of Mark is ransom, that we have been kidnapped by the dark forces in our world and we're held there with him. And Jesus pays the ransom for us that we might be called back to God, to be part of his kingdom project, to make Jesus our king, to be reformed as humans, and then to be sent back out as vessels of blessing into the world. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in Jesus' life and wants to do in our life and in our world. We may be powerless against the dark forces, but the Spirit of God is not. It's the same power that's at work within us. And in Romans 8, it says that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. It's the same Spirit and the same power. Now, I want to point out that this, the Spirit of God in the Gospel of Mark works at two different speeds. The first speed is, is the speed we see in this passage. It's kind of a super speed. You know, Jesus speaks and the demon is cast out. It's a miraculous event that happens in a moment. And I think we should pray for these kinds of miraculous events and hope that they still happen. If the Spirit of God is still at work in us today, then there's hope that they can continue to happen. But I also want to point out that the Spirit of God and, and His power works at a different speed as well in the Gospel of Mark. In a couple chapters later in Mark 4, Jesus gives four parables about what the kingdom of God is like. And three of them focus on plants. And we looked at the first one with the parable of the sower. But let me read the last two for us and look at the speed at which the power of God works. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on its head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And then he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all seeds in the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than the garden plants and produces large branches so the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. So here we see a second speed at work, a slower speed at the kingdom of God is growing like a plant. And so the power of God in the Holy Spirit works at two speeds in our world. We can call the first one the power or the speed of sound. Jesus speaks and it happens. It's instantaneous. But the second is the speed of a seed, the slow growing plant-like growth of the kingdom of God. And so a question for us, we want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, but are we aware of the Holy Spirit working at both speeds in our world and in our lives? So for some of us, I think what we need to hear is that we need to cry out for this miraculous 
the speed of, of sound happening, uh, Holy Spirit power working in our lives. We can't lose a vision for that. And so let's not lose hope that the Spirit is at work here as a sign of God's power. Let's pray that he continually breaks in in miraculous ways in our world. But let's also not be blind to the slow work of the Holy Spirit, the seed-like work in our lives and in our world. And I think that many of us in pandemic speed are just looking for something to pull us out into warp speed again. But I encourage us that this might be also the place that we're missing out on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we're not aware that he is working at the speed of a seed, the power and the miracle of growing fruit in our lives. So that's the third piece. So the, the, let's look at the final one, the final thing that the Holy Spirit does in our lives by looking at verse chapter one, verse fourteen. After God was, or after Jesus was, John was arrested. Wow, sorry. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the last P, the last thing that the Holy Spirit does is proclamation. Jesus, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, goes and tells everybody the good news, that the kingdom of heaven is here. And as people filled with the Holy Spirit, this is our call too, to carry on in this tradition. This is what the disciples did when they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1. They moved from immobilized to mobilized and shared the gospel in a way that it even reaches us today. Now, there's a lot to say about evangelism and proclaiming the gospel in a you know, post-Christian society. Um, and uh, of course, I can't say that all here. I think we're going to do a series on it at the end of the year. Um, so I just want to say one quick thing about it as we close today. In my life, a desire for evangelism and proclaiming the word of God is directly linked to my level of passion. I'm not a natural evangelist. I know some of you are, and you just stand on the street corner all day. That's great, and that's wonderful. But I find in my life, if I'm passionate about something, I talk about it. You know, I love my wife and my kids. I'm probably going to talk to you about them, whether you like that or not. It's going to happen. And it's the same thing I find with Jesus, that if I am passionate about him, if I'm experienced that, that growth of passion in my life, then I long and desire to share that with other people. And so final question for you and I, how is your desire to make Jesus known? Where, where is that at? When was the last time you thought about people who didn't know Jesus and the desire to make him known to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors and in our city? I think that will tell you a lot about where your level of passion is for our king and his kingdom. And if it's low, and it is for many of us, I think, in this pandemic season. We're languishing and we're kind of inwardly focused. I can't think of any better encouragement than Jesus' words here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. That Jesus is calling us to grow our picture of who he is. That something unique has happened in the history of the world through Jesus. And that his kingdom is breaking in. And that every moment is sacred because we get to be a part of this new kingdom. And that our king is no stranger to the wilderness that we're in, to this languishing that we feel. And that he wants us in our brokenness and he preaches this word of, of his pleasure over us. And that the power of the kingdom of God is at, at work in our world and unleashed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we're also said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of, of God has come near. So he's calling us to expand our vision of who Jesus is, but also to repent and believe the good news. As Luther said, repentance isn't just the beginning of the Christian life, 
but it's all the whole of Christian life. All of life is repentance. That we're called to look at ourselves with a gospel lens on and ask, why is my passion low for Jesus? Is it the pandemic? Probably, there's a, that's got a lot to do with it. But also another question is, where are my passions directed? Where am I finding myself drawn? What am I magnetized to? Where's the compass of my heart pointing? And then to say to those things, those may be good things. They may be, you know, um, renovating your house or getting a new car or, you know, some sort of long trip that you're longing to go on. Those are all great and wonderful things. But to, to turn our compass towards Jesus instead, to put our heart on him. And repenting, so repenting means to train our passions to point there. And they also mean by, by doing that to make changes in our lives in order to reorient our passions. You know, in, in his article, Adam Grant suggests two changes that help us get out of languishing. He says, to set boundaries, which means to be wise with our time and schedule our lives well around our priorities. And the second is to set small goals, the things that we want to see happen to, to set just tiny stretch goals that we might meet them. And so as we close, maybe a couple of ways we can do that to reorient our passions. I encourage you to take a look at your rule of life. Is it working out for you? Is it not? And if you haven't started one, now's a great time to start one. What's one thing I can subtract from my life and one thing that I can add in order to partner with the Holy Spirit to increase my passion for Jesus? And maybe it's spending a, some time recalibrating with Jesus every evening, just re- reviewing your day uh, in prayer and asking where your passions have been out of line and asking Jesus to pull them in. Or maybe it's limiting your screen time so you can spend time with God and his word. Maybe it's calling a friend and saying, I need to go for a walk. I just need you to pray for me. I'm, I'm languishing. This is tough. I want to b- bind together with you, working on spiritual friendship. And then finally is to pray, to pray for passion in your life and to pray for passion in our life of the church that we might become passionate people One quote that's been sticking with me this week is is from C.S. Lewis once again. He said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. So let's pray. Let's work together. Let's reorient our lives around this Jesus that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, around his kingdom, and become people who passionately pursue him, even in the midst of languishing. Would you pray with me to close? God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of Mark and just the amazing beauty and artistry that he has in crafting a picture of your life that draws us in. So may our definitions of you not only grow, but may we become people who are passionate for you, who are passionate followers of you, who love you and who love one another. So as we we respond in musical worship, in giving, in fellowship with one another, Um, We pray that you would make us more passionate people. Give us a passion for your, your church and for your work in our world. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.